Good morning. I'm reminded uh, earlier this week of the Heidelberg Catechism that begins with what is our only hope in life and death, uh, which the answer is that we are not our own but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior Jesus Christ. Well, that's a good reminder to start out any Sunday on. Uh, and so I just want to give that to you, and I pray that that is your hope this morning, that's your confidence, and if not, let me encourage you to uh, speak with someone. Uh, today, someone you came with, or maybe someone that is here, I'll speak with you after the service uh, to just see how you can have this kind of confidence that our only hope in life and death is that we belong body and soul to Him. And so with that... Um, I want to mention, before we look at the Word together, we have many opportunities. Uh, our church provides many opportunities throughout the week to get in and study God's Word. Uh, for you, we, uh, we are relentlessly, I could use that word, I think, uh, trying to teach a Bible study somewhere. Uh, and just pick a day, and we've had one, or we'll, uh, somebody will start one, I'm sure. Uh, but uh, those are opportunities for you to take advantage of as a church, not just our residents at the ministry center. Uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, the classes that we have there at 915, uh, they're open to you. And so if you want to grow uh, deeper in the word and five principles of discipleship and uh, doctrine and uh, through the gospels, those things like that, uh, take advantage of that. Uh, Friday Bible studies uh, that we have going on. But I would say most Im uh, importantly, uh, take advantage of our midweek service Wednesday night, 7 o'clock. And um, we have time together in the Word, going through the book of Galatians. Um, and not only do that, but we also come together to pray and to carry one another's burdens to the Lord uh, corporately. Now, you can pray on your own. I hope you do pray on your own. Uh, continually, weekly, without ceasing, the Bible says, but there's something about praying together corporately, uh, praying with someone else, touching on the very issues that we need to be lifting up. Our church family, uh, as you know, because um, it's a small town and news travels far, there's a lot of people in our church that are suffering and hurting and going through a lot of things, uh, and they need our prayer support. They need our encouragement, and it's one of the ways we do that. Uh, on Wednesday night as we go to the Lord in prayer. Not just that, but uh, but all the outreach and ministries and things that are going on, missionaries, we, we want to be diligent praying and asking God to, uh, to help us in that. And so I just want to encourage you, if it's not been your habit, I haven't seen some of you in a long time there, some of you I've never seen there on Wednesday night, we just encourage you to make that part of your week, make that part of your schedule this week. And uh, we would love to. That would be an encouragement uh, to you, I hope, and also an encouragement to me. It's encouragement to come in and know you've studied, at least put a couple of hours into studying the Word of God, and there's actually people here to hear it. Now, sometimes I go longer when there's nobody here, but um, <laughs> I don't know <laughs> why that is, but that tends to happen that way. But it's an encouragement to me, but it's also, I hope, and I trust, encouragement to you. And it's not pointless. I don't know how I can emphasize that more. Prayer, praying together, and, and taking these things to the Lord in prayer is, is what God has called us to do. And it's how God moves and works in our day and age. Uh, and eternity will only reveal the, the outcome of the prayers that the saints have offered up uh, on behalf of others in the kingdom of God. 
So keep that in mind as you, um, as you plan out your week. If you have your Bible with us, or with you, not with us, if you have it here with us, and uh, turn with me to the Gospel of John. If you're using a pew Bible, uh, you will find your place on page 1132. There are some odd Bibles that out there, same translation, it's just a different page. So if you're not there on page 1132, I apologize. John chapter 5, and I'm going to begin reading in verse number 1, and you can follow along with me as I read down to verse number 18. John 1, 5, 1 through 18. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate pool, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda which has five Ruth colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there for a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up and take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, the man that said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Father, we thank you for your word and this time we gathered this morning. Pray for your illumination, that your spirit and uh, speak to our hearts where we are. You know each one here. Just pray that you would work according to your will. And we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, as uh, about eight or nine years ago, I went on a mission trip to Nicaragua. Uh, It was a youth camp. We did a week. We put on, I'm not really sure what we put on, uh, but it was with youth. We tried to keep them alive and fed and and none of us older guys to hurt ourselves trying to keep up with these teenagers playing soccer. At the end of that, the, the climax of the event, after we spent a week of playing games and, and preaching and singing and all those things like that, we, we were on our way to take the, the young people back to their church. And as we were going back, we would take them to the landfill that was on the schedule. We would take them to the city dump. It was not nowhere near the shape that our uh, transfer station is uh, by far. Uh, It was a filthy, nasty, dirty experience 
if you found yourself there, you were lost, to put it mildly. As we got there, the dirt was just pitch black. It was hot. It was stinky. And all the people that lived there at the landfill, surrounding the landfill, the families there would come out and they would work. They would, uh, they would separate bottles and, and, you know, if they found something sellable, they would take it. And, they would, you know, they were, they were hustlers. Uh, they knew what it took to survive in Nicaragua and being the poor in that country. They did what they had to do, what people have done for centuries, nothing new. It, it struck me as one of those experiences that you were uh, overwhelmed at seeing and glad it was over with. And I say that to my own shame uh, because if I was taking a vacation to Nicaragua, I would not look that up on the vacation brochure of finding out where's the local landfill so I can go see how the natives live. Uh, we went there taking stuff, animals and food and, and tracks and different things like that. And the young people were hopefully getting to see some of their own people handing out food. I remember one incident in particular, we gave a little girl a doll and, and they were dirty kids. I mean, just filthy uh, and cute at the same time, so I don't know how that all worked out. But we gave them this stuffed animal to this little girl, and the dad just come along and snatched it out of their hands because he was going to sell it. That's what he was going to do, sell the stuff that was good. I just thought how un unbelievable this situation is. It reminds me a little bit of what we see here in our natural tendency to avoid such a scene. Avoid letting our eyes see people in this condition or those in this situation. We, we don't want to make eye contact. We don't want to see it. We want as, as quickly as we can to be around beautiful places and beautiful people. Uh, you can almost see the contrast to this in Perry Jones down at the Albany Mission who has surrounded himself with society's outcast and, and those whom the city itself wish they could get rid of. In fact, uh, his surrounding area has been trying exceedingly and succeeding up to this point to stop any further building to keep the homeless somewhere else other than being in the middle of the city in Albany. That's our, our tendency. But even in that, we are, it is remarkable to see how people cling hold of hope and, and desperation all at the same time. I think you see that in our narrative. Here we find hopelessness, despair, and, and hope all intermixed in the passage here with this kind of scene of what's going on here at the pool uh, in Bethesda. The pool itself is uh, in the northeast part of the city. Uh, the Sheep Gate is mentioned in Nehemiah as far as the repair, so it's the historical place there. It was a place that was built with shelter uh, so that those who were there could get out of the way of the sun and was fed by some underground springs as well as runoff rain and some other things like that. It is here that we find uh, Jesus walking among the people. He's not in the, uh, he's not in the upper class walking around those who uh, rubbing elbows with those, but he has found himself here and we often find Jesus surrounded by what the world would cast off to the side and put out of the way. In fact, what we might find um, us avoiding the place altogether so we don't have to experience what was going on here. 
It was at least in the scene that we have in our gospel a miserable place. Miserable by the fact of what surrounded it and the mythology or at least what was going on here uh, with these people and this hope that maybe there is a chance, slim chance, but maybe a chance that I can get out of the situation that I'm in. There's no fix to blindness and there was no fix to uh, being paralyzed and there was no fix to to the other things that these people faced. It was living with the, the consequences of having these sicknesses and disease. It is here in this pool that we have in your footnotes of your ESV and, and New American Standard, most of your modern translations, you have in the footnotes that what was probably the thought of the day, and that is that an angel would come down and trouble the waters, and the first one who, who, who steps in these pools after the waters are troubled, then they would be healed. And I think that is a probably accurate description of what we find here in verse number 7. When the sick man is asked about being healed, he refers to he has no way to get into the pool when it's disturbed or troubled or stirred up. Hope is one of those things, even a far-fetched hope like that, it still, it still kind of pulls us along. Whether, however you interpret that or however you take that, the people of his day at least was consumed with the idea that there was, there was something here that maybe this last chance, maybe they could get over what they had. And the place was filled with the lame and the paralyzed and the sick and the blind. It was all the ones who were asking for money. All of the ones who were having to be carried, who were considered burdened, who were watching the world go on as they were being passed by. Those who had come accustomed to living with their, their, their issues and ailments. And, and in this place, we find Jesus, but we not only find Jesus, John singles out to us one of these individuals. So we find ourselves at a miserable place here. And in this miserable place, I just want to just point out for a moment the man that's mentioned to us, this miserable man, just to beat the point home. And you can kind of see this. The first thing we notice about him is he is a man here who is helpless. Notice with me back in the verses that are in front of us, verse number 5, verse number 3, a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed are there. Verse number 5, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, he had already been there a long time, and he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. No doubt the man is not new to the area. He is here with this anticipation that if by chance he can get into the pool when it is stirred, if he can be the one to get in, then he would be healed. But he makes this remark and he reminds us as we see him that he is hopeless. He's confined to this bed. He has nobody to help him, or he is helpless. He has nobody to help him. And in fact, the, the very fact that he's been here 38 years in this condition reminds us that he has almost come down to the realization that it is what it is. Life is the way it is. 
But not only do we see him as helpless, I already give you the word, he is hopeless. He cannot get himself healed. He cannot get in. Even if he were to crawl, and that's the way I take it in verse number 7, even if he were to get himself there, he's not quick enough because everyone in this situation is out for themselves. There's no pity, there's no mercy, there's no helping one another out. It is what I can get out of this and me get fixed. And he was no better than the rest of them and he's not going to make it. He has come to the realization, even answering the question, do you want to be healed? We would expect a much different answer. Even answering that, he reminds us of his hopeless state. I've been in this way for 38 years. It's just the way it is. Even if I could get to the, I have no one to help me. Even if I could get to the pool, I wouldn't be quick enough. The blind guys, and then they got all the bodily functions. They get there before I would. It reminds me of someone who's standing in line with a number 548 and he reads on the sign, now serving and only serving number one. You get that, don't you? I mean, we're so impatient when we realize they're calling on 34 and as they're calling on 34, we look at our number and it's 48 and we're ready to leave and quit and, and go on. And here's a man coming to the realization, the grips of who he is and the situation that he's in. And at first we read this story and we have pity on the guy and we have compassion on the guy, but that's about as far as we go with it. We, we, we don't look at him and see ourselves, do we? The word of God is often like a mirror though. And in these scenes, we see not only this situation I think spiritually speaking, it is a testimony of every one of us here today. That in our flesh, we are faced with the inability to save ourselves. In our flesh and in our strength, we are faced with our, our in, inability to heal ourselves. And, and the, the tragedy of this, that standing near him, or at least near him, is this kind of anticipation of hope, a hope which he can't reach, a pool which he can't get into, a, a multitude which is in front of him who's all better and they're more capable than he is. And so he's left in this situation, and I would say without doing disjustice to this story, that that is often the promise of legalism and the law. Even as good as the Old Testament was, it just offered us blessings and curses and all it has ever been able to deliver us is curses. Because you and I have never been able to measure up to it. And the problem isn't with God's word. The problem isn't with what God has required of man. The problem has always been in our ailment, in our weakness, in our paralysis when it comes to our heart and our attitude towards God. Uh, to put it another way, we are all born miserable sinners fallen from God. Isaiah reminds us of this when he says, our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, trying to underline and score that if we are to receive help and be helped and find wholeness and healing, then we must look for it outside of ourselves. And up to this point, the man hasn't found it in anyone. And the good thing for us and the good thing for him is the story isn't over. He doesn't realize who he's talking to. 
And that's the promise for us in the gospel, isn't it? That we, at looking out of ourselves in that realization of our inability, we find strength and salvation. We find help in someone else, namely in a merciful Savior. And I know that there are many of you who are strong this morning, many of you who are educated, competent, skilled, gifted, beautiful people. I'm looking at you, you're you're beautiful people, this beautiful place. But even in that, isn't that in itself a facade when it comes to our standing before God? Isn't those things themselves the very things that oftentimes push us away from the grace, saving grace of the gospel? Isn't those often our false hopes and reliances? We'll see that in the aftermath of this miracle which takes place, uh, how remarkable the response of Jesus' own people are. And, and I'm just pointing that out to you that, that until we get to the place of seeing our inability, seeing our helplessness, there will be no help to be had. It isn't just the fact that we need someone to take us by the hand. We need someone to bring spiritual life. We need someone to do all the lifting for us. It's Ephesians 2, isn't it? When you were dead in trespasses and sin, he quickened, made alive. Now, this man doesn't need just someone to tell him to, to be better or, or I hope things are going to work out for you. He needs someone to bring life to him. And the joy of this this encounter is he's speaking to the only one who can do that. And as we read through the gospel over and over, John wants us to realize that Jesus really is the only one that can do that, not only for this guy, but for us. And notice we've seen the miserable man, we've seen the miserable place, but I want you to see the merciful Savior. Look again with me in verse number 6. I love this verse, how it starts out, don't you? When Jesus, what does it say? When he saw him. Years ago, there was a couple of college kids who decided to do a a project. I don't know what you call those things. A study as they would spend their summer homeless, going from place to place, living like homeless people. And and during uh, the aftermath of this, some of the questions that were asked them, the, the psychological impact that it had on them, one of the greatest things that, that bothered them, that disturbed them, that hurt them the most is the, the inability of people, or I don't know if it's the inability, the unwillingness of people to acknowledge them, to look at them. It isn't like going down the road and you're at a stop sign and you got a guy there. You know you got to do something. Either you're going to seem like a jerk and act like they don't exist by looking straight ahead like, you know, you're stiff on. Some of you guys have done that. Come on. He's there. You're not making eye contact with him. Because if you make eye contact with him, you know you got to give him $5 or $4 or you may only have a 20 and you sure don't want to give him a 20. You don't know what he's going to do with it. And so you don't, you don't even look at it, Right? Well, sometimes you look at it and you're just like, here, just go ahead, take it. And like you're fiddling around in your car trying to find something else. It is that unwillingness to acknowledge, to see humanity in that lowest state. And these college kids, that was the hardest part. That was the hardest part to see. Well, that God would give us eyes to see the misery of humanity around us. 
not to be ignorant and blind to it. But we don't want to. We don't take vacations like that. I was thinking of going to Egypt and and it looks like a, a dystopian movie. It's not what the brochures look like. You got these big pyramids and the Sphinx and all this cool stuff, and then you go there and it's streets littered with garbage. I know David's sitting there. Abraham's and well, you had a two day trip there, there and back. That's it. Because you didn't want to see it? You didn't want to be in the middle of it? I'm not condemning you. I wasn't driving, otherwise, we may have been a two day trip too. But I want you to see this, this reality that Jesus sees the man. He, he understands him. He knows him. He understands he's been in this place a long time. He doesn't need anybody else to tell him that he sees him. I think there's, a, there's an encouragement in that, that, that in suffering or in persecution or in, in, in difficulty, in sickness, it might be, it probably is our, our tendency to think that God does not care and God does not see. And for 38 years, the man has lived in this situation, putting his hope by chance that he might make it into this water. And the whole time we are brought back to this reality that God knows exactly where he's going. And God sees exactly what's going on in his life and what brought him to this point. And beloved, can I just encourage you this morning? God has not lost you no matter what you're going through. We tend to judge God in the, in, the, in the realm or through the lens of do's and don'ts. Hey, you're honest. It's that way, isn't it? And so we get with God and we can be comforted in God when the do's uh, are, are, are done more than the, than the don'ts. And so God is just all about rules and, and regulations and he's, he's not moved with pity or compassion or, or moved in a way to, to, to work and act. Mercifully? I think that is the greatest lie of the devil. It is in our self-pity that we find ourselves in that state, isn't it? And yet we're reminded here of the graciousness as we see in the, the, the life, the, the, the manifestation of God in flesh, the, the compassion of our Savior. Oh, he's merciful. Look at it. He sees the man lying there. He knows what's going on in his life. And he comes to him and he asks him, do you want to be healed? That is almost the craziest question, I believe, that can almost ever be asked. Don't you think? <laughs> do you want to be healed? What do you think? I'm here at the pool. I'm already complaining that people's not around me to put me in the pool. Bob over there got in before I did, and, and because he's, he's just blind, he can, he can get around good. And, and You know how that stuff goes as they talk shop. Do you want to be healed? That's a, obvious as a, plain as the nose on your face. Do you want to be made whole? Do you, do you want your life back? Do you want to walk and run and do all the things you used to do? Do you think anybody would ever say no to that? You'd be surprised, wouldn't you? How often the gospel of life is offered. Wholeness healing and restoration, help. And many people say, you know, if you could fix some circumstances in my life, that'd be great. If you could just leave me unchanged. 
Because after all, I'm pretty good. It's just circumstances. Bad luck or whatever else we say. I don't know if he's drawing that out of the man, but the man automatically goes to his own testimony, his own story. Almost to say he's forgot about healing a long time ago. He's given up on that boat. There's no hope for it. There's no chance for it. I think the question in one sense is a manifestation of the pity of the Lord and the pity of God. Where he spoke of him being compassionate and merciful, being moved by our sufferings and afflictions. It is in this question we we see his compassion over and over in the Gospels. In Matthew 14, he, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. Matthew 15, he called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now for three days and have nothing to eat and I do not want to send them away hungry for they might faint on the way. You see the, you see the love that he has for people? He doesn't look at this man unmoved. But looking at him with compassion, ask him, do you want to be, do you want to be whole? Do you want to be healed? But not only do I think it's a manifestation of his compassion, I think it is pulling out a confession of the man saying, at least this we see in verse number 7, I am helpless and unable to do this myself. You and I will never receive help and, and we never ask for help, do we, until we realize that we need it until we get to the end of ourselves. Isn't that true in life, just in general? Till we continue on with the futility of our efforts, coming to the place where reality hits us smack dab in the face and we cry out for help, and in those moments others come around us and, and strengthen us. Same thing here in this sense. We will never come to Christ. We'll never put our faith and trust in Him till when we see our need. Our need is wrapped up in our helplessness to save ourselves. And so he asked the man, do you want to be made whole? Do you want to be healed? Well, verse number seven, he doesn't ask the man for a demonstration of faith. He doesn't ask the man for anything. Or verse number eight, he doesn't ask for any of those things like that. It's just an unmerited, gracious, powerful, healing gift that he gives this man. Look at it in verse number eight. Jesus said to him, Get up. <laughs> That's almost crazy words, isn't it? The guy's on a bed. He's stuck to the bed. He, he, he cannot move. He's whatever's going on, some kind of paralysis in his life. And Jesus just simply says, get up. Like this should be just a normal thing. Like you tell your kids, get up or go to bed. Well, your kids are probably more uh, reluctant than this man was. He says, get up, take up your bed and walk. Isn't that an amazing scene? You know, it should be no surprise to us. We've been going through the Gospel of John and we've already seen that he is the divine Logos, the divine word who created everything into existence. He spoke and, and lights came on. That's what he says. If you go back to Genesis, God said, let there be light and there was light. He spoke the world into existence. He healed a, he healed a, a, a a boy that was sick near death 18 miles away by just simply saying he lives. 
And so here he commands this man to get up and his bones and muscles and joints and his nerves and all the other things that are broken and out of sorts and, and, and bent, obeyed by bringing themselves together somehow. And he got up and took his bed and got on with it. Isn't that amazing? Look at verse number nine. Get up, take your bed, and walk. That very thing that you're attached to, the very thing that, that has been your prison, your life, your, your place of existence, roll it up, throw it on your shoulder, and get down the road. And as he's walking, everybody's going to notice that the very thing that, that was a part of your life that marked you as who you were for 38 years is on your shoulder, and you're able to, to move along. You're carrying your bed instead of others carrying you. Now his bed, for those of you who like his, to know what those things are, it's a straw mat that you can roll up easily and carry it if you're a healthy guy. This guy couldn't carry it before. It's a sign that he didn't go off kind of limping or sort of slowly being healed and kind of inching his way. No, he was miraculously immediately healed at the command of Christ to get up and take up your bed and walk. Now, beloved, let me just say this morning, there's something to be said here that there were many people in that day, many lame and many sick and many broken. And yet all we have in our record is only this man received the gift of what we know of. Only this man was healed. And God's ways are not our ways. There are times when God removes burdens in your life and in my life and other people's lives. He moves in grand ways. He heals through prayer and intervenes in our life in dramatic and, and undoubted ways for his glory and for our good. We praise God and we rejoice in those moments. We believe and know his ability and his, his kindness and compassion in doing those things. But I do not think that we should be blind to the fact that he is still good and compassionate and merciful even if those things remain in our life and he chooses never to move them. There are other things that we face and sicknesses we carry that God chooses out of his sovereign wisdom and goodness and love towards us that he does not remove. But this does not mean we're no less loved or no less cared for that he is no less merciful to us than he is to others, that he is no less present with us than he is with others. In fact, what we find through the Apostle Paul's life and all throughout the word of God is that he gives a great measure of grace and his presence is given to us in, in different and greater ways through the midst of them just as he demonstrates his greatness and removing of them. And I would tell you here this morning that we are to rest in his sovereign, wise, good care for us. He is good, good father. And we are to rest in his care for us, looking unto him for help, knowing that there is something greater than the suffering that we experience in this life. And there is something worse than the suffering that we'll experience in this life. That's what he's getting to. So we see in this miraculous account, this platform that he uses to, to preach himself and to call people to repent and be warned of the judgment to come, verse 28. 
That's the miracle. I want to look at just for a moment in the remainder of our time this morning the aftermath of this. You see this narrative given to us in two scenes, the first of which is found in verse 1 through 9, the first part of verse number 9. Your ESV Bible in the paragraph has a, has a paragraph shift in the middle of verse number 9. And what you see there is the, the outcome or the aftermath of Jesus and his healing of this man and really part of the purpose of what is going on in this. And, and so look at it with me. First we see and we're introduced to particular characters and that is verse number 10, the Jews. Now I want you as we look through this, consider with me what is missing. No one has given glory to God. There has been no praise, no thanksgiving, no celebration, nothing. No no family coming along, no statement like was made in the last miracle where the man believed and his whole family believed with him. There's, There's no rejoicing, no word of gratitude up to this point. It's just simply God Christ moving in the act of his compassion of this man and making him physically better. The man takes up his bed and walks. And so we find at the end of verse number 9, now that day was the Sabbath. You almost want to be like, who cares? 38 years. The guy was stuck to his bed for 38 years. People was having to come by and throw stuff in his bucket. For 38 years, the man has not been healed. He's been laying there and laying other places all over the place. And, And for 38 years, the man is healed. He rolled up his mat. Who cares what day it's on? It could be on Hanukkah, it could be on Christmas. Well, they didn't have Christmas yet, you know, it will be New Year's. It doesn't matter, does it? The celebration, God has moved. Who could do such a thing like this other than God? You see that fleshed out in verse number or chapter 9. All of that is, is in the view of the blind man. And yet here, verse number 10, the Jews. These were the legal The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the the leaders of the day, these were the religious elites. The ones who knew the law, studied the law, studied the traditions of their fathers. They see the man walking. They said to him who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. (laughs) It's like the guy should have said, no, Jesus, can you come back tomorrow and heal me on Sunday? Be much better, be a lot safer. I carry my bed then, but I'm trying to observe the Sabbath, you know. But notice the tendency of these men. Well, maybe they didn't know he was healed. Maybe they didn't recognize. It looks like Bob that was down there to the the pool and couldn't walk, but maybe somebody else. It's the Sabbath. All we do know is he's carrying his bed. He shouldn't be carrying his bed and... And so they confront him about that. And he answered to them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. Now, the man admitted that he had been healed in verse number 12. Notice the emphasis here. Who is the man who said to you, not who is the man who healed you? In their view, that was totally out of the question. What was the main focus is, why would this man tell you to violate the law of the fathers? Why would he tell you to go against our traditions? Why would he tell you to do something that clearly, speaking, we have forbidden? 
And the problem is, is that they focused more on their own traditions, their own customs, rather than focusing on the glory of God and rejoicing in the fact that God was doing something amazing in their midst. They missed it. The fixation was on the breaking the Sabbath traditions. You find this over and over in the Gospel of John and many other Gospels. And on the Sabbath, there were 39 categories of work that was prohibited. And I almost wasn't even going to read the list to you because I know you probably want to go to brunch, but I think it would be good just to kind of see what was going on here. So I'm just going to read all 39. It won't take very long. Uh, you are not allowed to sow, plow, reap, bind sheaves, thresh, winnowing, cleansing crops, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, shearing wool, washing or beating or dyeing it, spinning, weaving, making two loops, weaving two threads, separating two threads, tying a knot, loosening a knot, sewing two stitches, tearing or ordering to sew two stitches, hunting a gazelle. I guess that's the only one hunting in here. So, Jim, you're good. <laughs> Slaughtering or filleting or salting it or curing its skin. Just don't cook it. Scraping or cutting it up, writing two letters. Erasing in order to write two letters because we know what you're about to do if you pull out that eraser. Building, pulling down, putting out a fire, lighting a fire, striking with a hammer, taking out ought from one domain to another. I don't know what an ought is, but I think that's a burden or something you carry. Maybe that's what you got against somebody. If some of you have an ought, you need to deal with that. That's the main classes of work, 40 save 1. A man who is healed violates by carrying his bed and all they could think of is their rules and regulations. These were not commands of God. These were not things that God commanded them to do. He said to keep the Sabbath day holy, something that they violated over and over in the Old Testament. It was a day where they were to rest and and be thankful for the provision of God for that week and and live in faith for his provision in the future. It was an anticipation or is an anticipation of the rest which he will offer us in Christ. As you find in the book of Hebrews. And yet what the Pharisees have did, and that's exactly the heart of legalism, what they have did is they have taken the good gift of God, that which is meant for our refreshment and that which is meant to to help us in our worship of God, and they have made it a prison in and of itself, a burden which nobody could carry. So much so that at the sight of a miracle, they're more bothered whether or not he's carrying something than they are the fact that he can walk in their midst. And what we find on later on, it isn't just the fact of that someone is violating the law, it's the fact that Jesus himself violates these things by practicing medicine if you call commanding someone to get up and walk a practice of medicine. I don't know what kind of medicine that is, but sign us up, right? Could you imagine a church to be so set in its ways that it wouldn't recognize God if he showed up and he would be unwelcomed? I was almost going to kid Barnabas walking in. I did say thank you for visiting. I was going to tell him to fill out a visitor's card. 
I don't know why. I feel a little goofy today, I guess. <laughs> Mary's not here. Maybe that's it. <laughs> I was going to tell him you need to go down and fill out a visitor's card. And it's almost like they're doing this with Jesus. God in the midst of them. Very incarnate son, God in flesh, and, and he is a stranger among his own people. The worship. And can I say that it is not just what we see in the New Testament era that people fall into that. Legalism itself and liberalism, to put, it, uh, to put along right there with it, distance itself from its maker. It is both a strong arm, a push away from Christ, away from the help and hope that's found in him. And in one sense, uh, these people were emphasizing and focusing on the man who could not help himself. They were, they were focused on the fact of, yes, you can and you better help yourself and get with the rules and regulations because that's exactly what self-righteousness does. And some of you have lived your life that way. And your whole standing before God, at least at one point of your season of your life, is, is, has been lived out of frustration and, and heartbreak and saved and not saved, all because your focus has been on what you're doing and what you have done and not focusing on Christ who has done it for us. It doesn't make us passive in the Christian life. It doesn't make us and lead us into um, the, the word of sinful exploitation. It doesn't make any of those things. But what it reminds us at the heart of what Christ offers us is what he can do, his strength, his ability, his power, his saving work, and, and our inability. And yet the people of his day would not accept it. There is a pride when it comes to this kind of religion, when it comes to this kind of manifestation. There's a pride that says, well, look at me. Look how better I am from this guy over here or that girl over there or whatever it may be. It is to walk with your eyes closed, blinded, to read your Bible without ever seeing the words on the page, to hear sermons and hear the word of God preached and the gospel preached without ears on your head. It is to miss the whole point of it all, to bring us back to to our neediness, but not just our neediness, but to the supply, the provision of Christ to meet that need. It says do, and when you get done with doing, it says do more and work harder and, and gain more because you, you never get to the point where you can say I've arrived and I've achieved, and it is the greatest act of idolatry and futility that you and I could ever engage in. And it is deadly and deceptive because it feeds itself into churches and has fed itself into churches throughout the centuries. Of this is true religion. This is, this is where you ought to be. And it has erased Christ, if not at least covered him up with our own picture. And these are these men plagued by it. God is a foreigner to them. And I just want you to see how remarkable that is. Verse number 18, this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. 
Jesus tells him, my father is working until now and I am working in verse number 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. He's the founder of the nation. And yet he's not accepted. He's not accepted. The promised Messiah. And he is rejected. Why? Because they were resting in their tradition and their merit and their own goodness and could not see their need. And the word of God is that hammer which hopefully breaks <laughs> that hardened heart and the blindness that captures us to bring us to see face to face our reality of our need, but the beauty that's found in Christ. But I would say the same thing true with liberalism. If you want to talk about one, you might as well talk about the other. The churches all over America that are gathered together in the name of Christ, worshiping, have have a Bible, they have worship songs and lyrics and all the trappings, but if Christ were to walk in, he would be a foreigner among them. And just like legalism and, and that pursuit of their own righteousness, you have this, this kind of pursuit and worship of themselves at the end of the day. Nothing can be such a tragedy as we find here in this text. A great healing, a great miracle, and a great controversy. But notice the second character mentioned here briefly with me, and that is the man again shown to us in the warning that is given to him. Verse number 11, they confront him about his carrying the bed. He answered them, the man who healed me, the man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man that asked you to take up your bed and walk? He didn't know because Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crown in the place. Verse 14 After Jesus saw him again, the temple, he said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Now, the first time I encountered this story, I thought, Well, the man is clearly thankful and he is testifying to the power and the majesty of Christ and healing of him. I I think uh, most majority of the commentators have a different take on this and I tend to agree with them. A man who has received this physical healing, a man who has received this gift of of a new lease on life, in the interrogation deflects. Who told you to take this? Well, it's not my fault. It's the guy who told me to, to, the me that told me to take this bed and walk. Now you can decide for yourself how that should be interpreted, but I tend to think that's the way it is. In fact, some commentators say here the man shows his dullness. Quite the opposite of the man we find in John chapter number 9 as we get to that in days ahead. He is much like the ten, the nine who healed of their leprosy did not turn back and thank him for the healing but went on their way. So Jesus comes and warns him and I think it's worth seeing that as we come to a close this morning. Notice again. Verse number 14, the man went away. He did not know who healed him. Jesus comes to the man and the man is warned. And he shows us what purpose was this healing? Well, much could be said about this. The purpose that a man was healed for was, was for, his, for this platform to preach who he is among the people. 
but it's also to, to warn the man and call the man to a different way of life, to call the man to repentance, wasn't it? Notice verse number 14. He found him in the temple. See, you are well. Sin no more. As John Piper would say, the man was healed for his holiness. And God works in our life not only to, to fix and help and alleviate and give comfort, but to sanctify us, to bring us into holiness and line us up with his ways. Go and sin no more. Lest something worse happens to you. Don't live in sin any longer. Now the natural reading of this implies that the man in his situation for 38 years was the result of something he did, a sin against God. That's not a very popular view. And I want to be careful in saying that. It is easy to go up to somebody when they got something wrong in their life and say, well, you know, it's because you're sinning before God. That would be wicked and that would be wrong. It would be abusive. We know that because we look at the servant Job and God says there's nobody like him and he faced more than any of us will ever face. And we know that again in John chapter 9, it's the thinking of the day. Everything bad that happens in life, whether it's sickness or or poor uh, or bad providence of God, bad situation in life is directly related to sin. And Jesus stops that and said, no, this man was born blind because the glory of God, for the glory of God. But we also understand that there are consequences and results of actions in this life as well. I tend to read it that way. I think it's a natural reading of the text. Go and sin no more. Do not continue on in sin or something worse will happen to you. Whatever it was, we are not told. Jesus knew. And again, you can disagree with me all you want. That's fine. I'll still have coffee with you if you want afterwards. And a piece of cake or something. But anyway. He does give him a strong warning though, doesn't he? What could be worse than 38 years of someone carrying you around? Can you imagine that? What could be worse than living as an outcast in society watching the world go by? What could be worse than watching people live their lives, do their thing and all that and what he's experienced? It's really at the heart of what Jesus is asking and telling this man. Go and sin no more. Follow after God. Follow after righteousness, which we'll see fleshed out. What does that mean? Well, it means believing on the only begotten Son of God, as you see later on, doing the works of the Father. But at least here at this moment, he is giving him a warning. There's something worse than what you've been healed from that will await you if you continue on in rebellion against God or continue on in sin. That's a sober warning for us, something that we need to hear, isn't it? He gives us a, a, a glimpse of this. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear the voice of God and come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Verse number 29. It isn't the sorrow in this life and the suffering or the calamity we face in this life that is most to be feared and dread. There is a, a calamity, a suffering, a sorrow that that is beyond this life that Jesus is warning this man that there will be no reprieve, there will be no breaks, there will be no fresh breeze on a hot day when things are unbearable. 
It will be facing the full weight of the wrath, the just and righteous wrath of God against our rebellion against him. What a sober reminding for those who have taken God's gift of life and and health and his goodness and they've squandered it in their own ways, never giving glory to God and never turning to him, repenting and believing in Christ. They will one day stand and give an account before him just like all of us will. It is once appointed unto man to die and after this the judgment. You say, why does he speak to the man like that? Why doesn't he speak to him like he speaks to the woman at the well? Why does he speak to him like other people? Because sometimes we need to be brought back to the sober reminder that we're playing with life and death. Not just playing games. I don't know if the man got it. Eternity will tell. I know the man went back and as soon as he found out who spoke to him, who did this work, he went and told him it was Jesus who healed him. D.A. Carson has very little respect for the man and says we should not give him the benefit of the doubt that he is doing well. Whether that's true or not, I don't know, but I know the warning is real and is a warning that we all must wrestle with. Over and over we're told who has warned us to flee the wrath to come. And sometimes the gift of life and the gift of salvation is only is only appreciated, is only valued when it's compared to what we are being saved from and to to what the reality of death is. Eternal separation from God and goodness, as we will see more and more as he speaks about judgment, burying under the just and righteous wrath of God, giving an answer for every rejection, every rebellion, every sin that we've committed. And even now at this moment, we've committed enough sins to, to fix eternity and its misery in an unbearable state. How much more as life continues on? And yet God in his mercy, Christ in his mercy for this man warns him. And that's what the gospel does over and over. That's what we're to do. Not only heed the warning our own selves, but carry that warning with us. God is fixed today, and we must be prepared. We'll look at that more as we see Jesus and his Father next week. You can be anticipating that. Well, friends, church family, we have a great and merciful Savior that sees exactly where you are. And his goodness in your life, his grace in your life, his mercy is meant to lead you to repentance and lead me to repentance. And even you being here this morning, God bringing you here this morning brings you to a place to where again you can rejoice in the fact of our inability and the, and the glory and the splendor of his ability. Remind yourselves of that. And for those of you here this morning that need again to be reminded and warned that while help is offered and extended, the cost of rejection is great and terrible. I pray that you would turn to him even today. Bow with me. Father, we thank you for this day you've given to us. Thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you for the reminder of what you're able to do exceedingly above all that we could ask or think. The great examples we have in your word and in life and 
And Lord, thank you for your wisdom and your goodness. Thank you that you looked, saw that no one could bring salvation, so your strong arm brought it yourself. Thank you that while we were like this man much more than we like to admit, that while we were like him, you sent your spirit and power with full conviction and the the hearing of your word and the, the pleading of others, you have quickened us and made us alive. Father, I pray that if someone here has not had that experience, even now you would be doing that work among them, that you may be glorified among the people. Lord, we love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.